All right. Hey, good morning, y'all. How you doing? Good? All right. Happy Sunday. I'm glad y'all are here. Welcome to the story. If you're here for the first time or if you're relatively new to this community, I'm really, really glad you're here. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the story. And I hope you find uh, uh, the story to be more than just a, another church. I hope you find it to be a community where all your questions and doubts about God and the Bible and religion and Christians, etc., it's, it's all welcome here because we do believe that it's in our doubts that we find deeper faith. So um, just know that, that you're welcome here no matter where you are on the spectrum of religion and, uh, and religious identity, all right? So we have a very special Sunday planned for you today. <laughs> if it's your first time, just know that this isn't the topic of every Sunday sermon, okay? So I'm gonna get to that in just a minute, probably the most awkward day of the year. You're here for the first time <laughs> on the most awkward Sunday ever, okay? So the, the series of messages that we are wrapping up today is called Ask Me Any. Anything. And this is a series that is uh, designed by you guys, the congregation. So the three services of people here, 839, 45, and 11, and then our online campuses, uh, campus services and, and the Timbergrove campus, um, everybody together all submitted your questions and then you voted every week for the question that you liked the best or the one you wanted me to talk about on Sunday uh, uh, morning. And so you saved the best for last and the hardest one for last, of course. And so this week's question is, the Bible never mentions premarital sex. So premarital sex never is, the phrase anyway, is never mentioned in the Bible. So why are Christians so against it? All right, so I just want to thank you all for voting for this one, and, uh, and this will be the last week of the series. So <laughs> uh, this one actually is, is not that much of a, it's not like a huge deal for me personally. People were asking me all week, so you're nervous, you know, I'm praying for you this week, you're nervous talking about premarital sex? I'm like, not at all, because I talk about embarrassing things all the time. <laughs> My comfort level with awkward is much higher than the average person's, okay, so I'm worried about y'all. I'm worried about how awkward and weird this is about to get for you to hear your pastor talk about sex for a good half hour. But, uh, but, but we got to do this, all right? This is an important topic. And so not nervous. I am, I am genuinely concerned about not laying um, more shame or pain onto people who are already carrying too much of that around where this subject is concerned. And I recognize the church's responsibility in some of that shame and some of that pain. And so I do not want to add on to that, all right? That's the only thing that kind of kept me up um, this week. But I guess I'm also a little bit nervous that you might have some unrealistic expectations of me in this message. I'm not about to tell you some new information, some secret that I found in the Bible that after 2,000 years, we finally found the loophole uh, for me to bless whatever you're doing. <laughs> I would love to be that kind of guy. I would love to have that news for you today that uh, the story is a church where however you feel good about doing this thing that we're talking about today is great. Just come join our church and give us your money. Like, I would love to be able to say that, but that's not the, the reality, all right? I'm not going to come up with any new loophole. We haven't found the workaround at last, you know, um, that, that I wish I could report to you today. I'm not going to report on my feelings or my personal opinions on this topic. What I'm going to try to do is, is just kind of offer up what the Bible mentions or suggests about human sexual boundaries and give you a little bit of the why behind that, all right? Because sometimes we have this idea that God and Christians just want to, they're just big you know, sticks in the mud. Just They want to control us. They want us to not enjoy things, especially this thing, right? 
And I think that's just, I think that's off message. I think that's not really what the Bible's about, especially where these, these issues are concerned. But it has been interesting in my ministry as I've noticed something. I've noticed that this issue more than any other issue, more than any other sin, people want to find the, the workaround. For the people who never read the Bible will get deep into the word just to find a reason to keep having sex the way that they want to do it. <laughs> like, like more than anything else, they'll, they'll try to find the loophole on this one topic. And I just, I just want to say I've heard all of the justifications because I love people who are all over the place on this issue. You know, some people have come and, you know, especially like older adults, right? I don't mean like 80, that would be a little different. But this, I'm talking about like, like adults that are, that are middle-aged adults. And they're like, well, we met. We love each other. It's consensual. We think marriage is kind of a bad deal. We both were married. We're not anymore. Like, but we both respect each other. And we, we're going to do this thing. Is that cool, pastor? And I'm like, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's not. Like, if we were just secular buddies, like, maybe we could have a different conversation. But with the Bible in the mix, no, you, I can't go there and bless that union, <laughs> that relationship with you. Even if it is consenting adults, even if, if they do respect each other. Are you married? No? Okay, well. And sometimes I'll have the sweet couple, you know, and they're, like, in love, and they are in a committed relationship. And they would be engaged, she says. He would have proposed by now, but he's still in school and he can't afford a ring. And I'm like, he can't buy you a ring and you're giving him your body? Like, what, what is your body worth? Like, your body's worth more than a, than a ring. Well, he said he can't afford a ring yet. And that's why he hasn't proposed. And I'm like, this ring that I'm wearing, this is not a lie, this ring is stainless steel, but from Walmart, $35. And it's, it's served me pretty well. Like, and she goes, she'll say that. <laughs> but he said he can't afford the ring that a woman like me deserves. It's romantic. And I'm like, it's really not at all romantic. And then the guy will pull me aside and be like, my dad told me that you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first. And I'm like, she's a car? Like, find a better analogy. Don't tell her she's like a car. What if you test, I'm not even going to, I can't even justify that with a rebuttal. Like, just don't use that analogy. She is more than a car. She has to be, you know, and, and she'll say, well, he told me I'm the one, and he's the one for me, and we just can't wait. I'm like, well, that's great. If you both know you're the one for each other, and you can't wait, call him now. I'm free this afternoon. I'm ordained. I will marry you here and now. And this is what they'll say then. No, the wedding has to be perfect. <laughs> Not even hearing the irony in there, right? So the, I used to be a little offended by this, but I'm going to come back to this in a second. The wedding has to be the right, the right occasion, in the right circumstances, with the right person at the right time. The wedding has to be perfect. And, and what I see now is that the heart behind that sentiment shared by millennials the world over, the heart behind that sentiment is that the way the Bible speaks around sex is very similar to the way my millennial friends speak about their wedding. 
And I actually think there's hope there. Because anytime it seems like we're so far apart, there's no room for conversation, and you find a little common ground, there's some hope there. Because there's still this idea that something about this union must be good and perfect and set aside for later, for the right time, the right place. That's what we've been saying about sex forever. Some people are still saying it, but they're saying it about the wedding now. So there's a little shred of hope, I think, in that that conversation to be had. But but before we get to to that, I've just got to say, just to be absolutely clear so no one can misquote me, when, when the Bible, where the Bible is concerned about sex, it's really clear cover to cover about God's boundaries with this issue. So the, the Bible sets up sex as a gift of God to be enjoyed within the marriage bed between a, a husband and a wife, within the, the covenant of marriage. That's, those are the boundaries that God sets around sex. He doesn't set these boundaries because sex is bad. He sets these boundaries because sex is good, so good that it, it needs boundaries, like art needs a canvas. Okay, so sex needs this in order to really be, be experienced according to God's will or, or his ideal for us. So by definition, I want to be careful here, but by definition, every sexual expression outside of that is by definition sin, okay? But Jesus doesn't let anyone off the hook because Jesus said, even the sexual expressions you experience in your mind that are outside of this are considered sin. So the the whole Bible and Jesus in, in particular really set this bar so high as to remind all of us that 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 we're not there yet. None of us can stand on some soapbox and judge other people because all of us have fallen short of this ideal, right? But from from the Old Testament to New, there's consistency here. So Deuteronomy 22 sets up this this idea in a way that is pretty stark. And I won't won't read it. You can read it yourself. But Deuteronomy 22 verse 13 starts off this, this sequence of sentencing for sexual crimes. So sexual sins should be sentenced this way, and a lot of the sexual sins people committed back then were punishable by death, which causes a lot of people to go, that doesn't sound very loving. And I understand it, but it only doesn't sound loving if you don't understand holiness, if you don't understand God and his desire for us and his, his, who he is. And the point isn't that we should be stoning adulterers to death. Don't, don't, don't worry. There's no stones to be thrown here, right? The point is that before Jesus came and atoned for all of our sins and shortcomings, all sin, like in this case sexual sin, was such an offense to God that it must be dealt with in a serious way. And sexual offenses in Scripture seem to have carried some kind of a special weight because of the bodily component. And for for believers, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so you don't desecrate your body, okay? Now, that carries over to the New Testament. All kinds of teachings in the New Testament talk about sexual immorality, and that's a very vague term, intentionally so. Sexual immorality is a blanket term to capture all those expressions outside of the marriage bed, all right? So premarital sex would be included in this category because it's, it's outside of the marriage covenant, okay? But this is an example of what I'm talking about from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. So it says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. It's made holy or made perfect. That you should avoid sexual immorality. 
that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. This is God's standard. Not in passionate lust like the pagans or the worldly people who do not know God, and that in this manner, in this matter, no one should uh, wrong or take advantage, so no coercing, no pressuring, no exploiting a brother or a sister in Christ, right? So the Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being. They reject God, the very God who gives you his holy spirit. So this is a picture of God's ideal for sex. It is to be treasured and valued, but within certain um, relationships, within a certain relationship between a husband and wife. Okay? Now, I am well aware that this is not a winning argument (laughs) in the world. This is such a minority view, y'all. And what I've what I discovered this, this week is that it's even a minority view in the church, what I'm telling you right now. It's crystal clear in Scripture. There's really no, there's, there's no um, murkiness here. It's, it's crystal clear in the Bible. But in the church, in America, the tide has turned. Let me tell you what I mean. So the latest research from Pew Research in, in 2020 stated that uh, 84% of non-religious Americans believe that casual sexual encounters between two consenting adults that aren't in a relationship, totally fine, morally acceptable, it's okay. This is not a surprise, by the way, right? 84% of non-religious people, okay? What really surprised me was deeper in the data where I discovered that 50% of American Christians said the same thing. 50% of American Christians said people who, two consenting adults who aren't in a relationship and are not married to each other, uh, can, can have at it, and it's perfectly fine. Christians. And then if you, if you ask people, what about a committed relationship, their boyfriend and girlfriend? What then? 57% of Christians then said, it's totally fine and morally acceptable to do that. This shocked me. Maybe it shouldn't have. I don't know. Maybe I'm naive, but it shocked me that people who say they're living by the word of God, and the word of God is pretty clear on this, would be willing to flex on this issue. And all I can think of in a trying to be generous here, is that we have such big hearts sometimes that we, we allow our hearts to be, uh, to, to be convinced of things that we just want to be true. We don't want to be so countercultural or seen as so anti-sex or so hateful or bigoted or whatever, backward, whatever they call us, and so we'll flex on this. We'll, we'll, we'll try to make the Bible conform to our will instead of the other way around. And... Uh, and what I'm going to call us to today is, is to do the opposite. And wherever you're at, I, I'm going to challenge you because I think Scripture challenges you and me to, on this issue, conform our will to the Word of God, to conform our desires to the Word of God, even these desires that are so central to our identity, to our being, to conform those even to the Word and will of God and not the other way around. Now, because this is such a losing argument, I was trying to think this week, what do you do? What's a good tactic when there's just no way forward, when there's no convincing, right? There's no movement in the data. What do you do? Well, you try to find common ground. Common ground between people who disagree in this culture in these days, it's very hard to find. We are a very divided nation. Have you noticed? Red states and blue states and liberals and conservatives and 
Democrats and Republicans and anti-vaxxers and pro-vaxxers and, and everything is dividing us, tearing us down the middle. But I have some good news today because I think I found three things on this subject that we all can agree on. And I found this to be so refreshing, okay? So the first thing that I think on this subject we can all agree on, whether you're Democrat, Republican, red state, blue state, mask, no mask, whatever, we all can agree that sex is good. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah from the congregation. Anyone? Okay. I'm glad y'all are with me here because 945 just looked at me like, I think, he's, I think it's a trap. Don't say anything. <laughs> I think it's a trap. So y'all are my fun, my fun group, okay? So sex is good. This is something we should all be able to agree on, all right, from just the most fun friends you have to the nuns in the wherever the convent. We should all agree that sex fundamentally is, is, is good, okay? So um, there's something about it, though, that's even more than good. Good doesn't even cover it. Even for secular people, there's something like next-level sex that we're obsessed with culturally. We write, we write anthems and, and plays and movies and books about this thing in ways that we don't. This sex never goes out of style like other things do. So there's something transcendent or maybe even sacred about this. I came across this article in Time Magazine, which is, maybe you've noticed, a secular uh, not a Christian <laughs> publication, okay? Time Magazine talked about, about sexuality in ways that every Christian, just about every Christian, can endorse at least part of what I'm about to read to you. Not all of this, but, but part of it, okay? This is from Time Magazine about sex. Of all the splendidly ridiculous, transcendentally fulfilling things humans do, it is sex, with its countless permutations of practices and partners, that most confounds understanding. What in the world are we doing? Why in the world are we so consumed by it? The impulse to procreate may lie at the heart of sex, but like the impulse to nourish ourselves, it is merely the starting point for an astonishingly varied bouquet. Oh, sorry, banquet. I can't read. Banquet. <laughs> Bursting from our sexual center is a whole spangle of other things. Art, song, romance, obsession, rapture, sorrow, companionship love, even violence and criminality, all playing an enormous role in everything from our physical health to our emotional health to our politics, our communities, our very lifespans. Why should this be so? Did nature simply overload us in the mating department, hotwiring us for the sex that is so central to the survival of the species? And never mind the sometimes sloppy consequences or is there something smarter and subtler at work, something larger interplay, uh, some larger interplay among sexuality, life, and what it means to be human. This is a secular view of the transcendence of sex. This is something that, that Christians, uh, at least fundamentally, can't really argue with, that sex is sacred, and that people are obsessed with it, right? So I, I love that the, the, the author even mentioned um, crime, Criminality, that's an interesting topic from a secular perspective. Why do we punish sexual crimes differently? Why? Why is it different than just a regular assault? It's an assault against a person's body. Why is that kind of assault 
more grievous, to be punished differently, more severely? Why does that offender need a, a, a moniker, a label attached to him or her for the rest of their life? Sex offender. Why don't we do the same thing with regular assault? Because we know, whether we believe in God or not, we know there's something extra about sex, right? All of us have this innate knowing. We know that it is to be protected. Like, like you know, other things might be ordinary by comparison. We, we know that it's, there's something beautiful and important to protect and preserve. And Christians can agree with this, right? Sometimes I, I just think Christians, we miss the opportunity here. We, we miss the chance to remind people that God made sex. Like, we believe God invented it. You know that, right? Sometimes I think Christians have the, especially if you grew up in the Bible Belt, in the Bible Belt, you're taught that maybe Satan made it. Maybe Satan made sex so good, and it's a trap, right? No, no, God made it. He engineered it. He invented it to be just so, just so pleasurable, just so transcendent, just so wonderful, just so mysterious. He gave it the power to create another human life. This is a singularly special event and experience for human beings. And we believe God made it that way. But we don't ever talk about it. So weird. That should be what we lead with in the world. I mean, if we're trying to sell God to the world, right, why would we leave that part out? Why are we like, well, you're going to have to give up a lot of things. Like, that's first and foremost. No, tell them. You like that? Well, God gave it to you. Like, we think God made it to be that great. Like, it would be like trying to sell, like, like, imagine you're on the Chamber of Commerce for Houston, but you'd never talk about the food. Like, what else are you going to sell people on Houston with? Like, we should, we should be more willing to talk about sex than, than I think, most of us are and more willing to talk about God's uh, design than more, most people are. I mean, lest we forget, God's very first command in Scripture was not, thou shalt not. The very first command in Scripture to people was, fill the earth and multiply, which can only be done one way, as far as I know. His first command to Adam and Eve was, go do that thing you guys are enjoying so much and do it a lot. Do it until the earth is full. That was the first command, right? So this desire we have, this hunger for, for sex or intimacy and this hunger we have for God are, are, are very um, connected in a way to the extent that some researchers say some of the, the language we use in our most rapturous, pleasurable moments might speak more about God than about sex. Let me give you an example. M. Scott Peck, author of The Road Less Traveled, he said this in one of his books he's about the fascination with God and the fascination with sex that all humans share. He wrote, it is no accident that even atheists and agnostics will at the moment of climax routinely cry out, oh God. <laughs> and he was serious. He's not even joking. He's like, no, there's probably something to this. If we're reaching out for something beyond this just carnal experience, there's something more that the human soul wants. But contrary to what you might have heard, Christianity uh, holds that sex is good, and it's good because God made it that way. So I think we can all agree on that. Red state, blue state, liberal, conservative, you agree sex is good, raise your hand. I'm just, don't, don't raise your hand, but we all agree, okay? Okay, so it could be very awkward for some of you here with your parents. So the second thing that we, 
all can agree with, I believe, is, is that Christians have lost the plot on sex. We've lost the plot. And this is really unfortunate that we've allowed this, this narrative to get away from us so much that, that we never get around to point out that sex was God's idea. Especially if you grew up in the Bible Belt, like I did. Bible Belters in the house. Like if you grew up in a, in a very conservative, a theologically conservative town, uh, you know the shame and fear that come along with this topic. And it, it can be really traumatic, actually. All right? So this is, what, this is how one uh, author described growing up in the Bible Belt. He said, life in Lubbock, Texas taught me two things. One is that God loves you and you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> the, other, the other is that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth and you should save it for someone you love. <laughs> all right, this is all too common uh, a narrative in churches and it's such a shame. It's such a shame. Um, I, I remember being a youth, like a teenager in church. I was a preacher's kid, small town, just a real Bible Belt town. And, and, you know, we heard more about the dangers of sexual sin than we heard about all other sins combined. Isn't that weird? There's a lot of sins in the Bible. Like, why didn't they ever tell us about the other stuff? Why is this one thing so important? And, of course, it's also counterproductive because when you put one forbidden fruit in front of a bunch of teenagers, what's the one thing they're going to want to do the most? By the nature of being teenagers, they're going to want the one thing that, you know, the Sunday school teacher and pastor and parents all tell them they're not supposed to do. So we create this weird obsession. And some of us, the good kids, we, we keep to the path. Most of us, you know, in church, we try to stay pure and and not lose our virginity. And we, I was the preacher's kid, and I was sufficiently scared to not give in. But I will tell you that when I lost my faith later, and I lost my faith before I lost my virginity, I guess. But once, once I lost my faith, like, y'all, I was angry. Not at God, because he didn't exist. I was angry at the people that told me God would be mad at me for living this out and doing what I wanted with my body, right? So that drove me further into doubt. So be careful when you, when you, when you overemphasize this in a shameful or fear-based way, which churches are prone to do, right? So uh, it's, it's really a shame uh, that, that, you know, if we're going to lay shame onto people, to kids especially, for the sex stuff, we should just be consistent and lay shame onto them for all of it. Like, <laughs> like I had this idea that it's, it, it would be better to slap granny than it would to have sex. You know, it's like you can get away with anything, but don't do this one thing. Why? Well, I, I think it's, it, it's really not biblical the way that we come at this issue. I think that we are, uh, we are pushing younger people further and further away with our hypocrisy. For some reason, we like to home in on this one issue. Pastor Greg Boyd put it this way, if we retained a system of evaluating sin at all, Sins such as impatience, unkindness, rudeness, and self-righteousness, all indications that love is absent, as well as prevalent church sins, listen up, such as gossip, greed, and apathy would rank higher on our list than sins such as homosexuality or heterosexual promiscuity. 
Y'all, it really breaks my heart when I look back and I realize that some of the kids who sort of left church when they decided to have sex in their youth, they never came back. Like some of those kids realized that they had lost some purity or they, they were told they had lost some purity, they had lost their virginity, and so they weren't pure like these other church kids were. So they didn't belong anymore, y'all. This is so deep and profound. I'm not saying that we should stop talking about this as a sin. I'm just saying we need to interject more love, more grace, more understanding, more hope in the way that we talk about this so that it doesn't feel to people, especially young people, like this is the one thing you can do, the, the unforgivable sin. It's not. It's not. Your sin doesn't disqualify you from belonging in the church or following Jesus. So I think we can all agree that we've lost the plot in terms of the, the Bible and Christianity and, and sex. Okay, the third thing that I think we find common ground on it's a little more convoluted. So y'all hang in with me on this one. But I think a third thing we agree, on, we agree on is that sex is either like heaven or a hamburger. All right, so hang in there with me. I thought of this this week. I'm not really sure it works, but let me see. Okay, so sex is either like heaven or a hamburger, and there's really no middle ground. What I mean by this is there's really two ways of looking at sexual behavior, and you probably fall into one camp or the other. And I've been in both camps, so I kind of know what both are like. What I mean when I say sex is like heaven is what the Bible says about sex is that it is a foretaste of heaven, that the best experience you'll ever have in this life in terms of sexual embrace or intimacy will pale in comparison. It'll be a little bit like heaven, but it will only be for a moment where heaven is forever. It will only be, you know, in this life, in this body, but heaven will be far more glorious and great, and wonderful, and, and, and forever, right? So, so this is how the Bible speaks of sex. Do you realize this, that, that, that when, when God speaks to his people, he often speaks to them as a, a, a husband looking for his wife through the prophets, for, for example, through Ezekiel. He spoke to his people like, you are my bride. I covered your naked body. I made you mine. There's all kinds of this imagery. There's a whole book in the Bible that's all about the beauty of sex. And, and uh, it's called Song of Songs. Be careful when you read it. It's just warning, like it's serious business. But it's also meant to show us something about God. Jesus is described as the groom and his church is the bride. The book of Revelation that we studied all summer talks about the end of this world and the beginning of heaven. The kingdom come looking like a wedding feast. And get this, the real word that it uses to describe the kingdom of heaven coming to earth and Christ coming for his bride is consummation. So there's something more going on here when it comes to sex, and, and the sexual experience is just a, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of something so much greater. That's why we need to protect it as sacred, because it is. So Christians believe, most of us believe, that sex is like heaven. But most people don't believe that overall. Most people more and more believe that sex isn't like that at all, that there are feelings wrapped up in, in sex. Don't get me wrong, there's like, 
oh, it's, it's amazing, it's good. People in this camp would say it's good to connect with another human being. It feels intimate and, and profound and sure. But at the end of the day, all of those feelings are really just an illusion. It's really just an illusion. Because this camp, would you're really left with absent God, right? You're, you're left with no other with no other way to understand sex as just this uh, gift evolution has given us. <laughs> this, this random process sort of in the, in the whole scheme of our, our history. The way that sex has evolved is that the better it feels, the more sex human beings have, and so the better it's come to feel over time. But the feelings are just an illusion to get us to have more sex so that we can propagate the species because life finds a way like in Jurassic Park. Like that's the whole idea. And so the feelings of togetherness and we're one now and all, it's just an illusion. It's a trick your mind plays on you to get you to make more babies. And, and so additionally, it, it also tends to serve as a nice uh, stress reliever. That's another, that's another practical function of this, right? So, so sex in this camp is just a, it's fulfilling a carnal, primal hunger and it is relieving stress and making you feel better. So it's a fine description of sex, but you know what? It's also a fine description of Shake Shack. Like, that's how I feel at Shake Shack. <laughs> I'm here for my carnal urge and hunger, and I need to satisfy it, and I feel better at Shake Shack than I feel most places, <laughs> right? And so, but the feeling goes away. It's not really, it's, an, it's, it's all an illusion. I'm just supposed to stay alive. That's the illusion. I'm there to eat. And so evolution has put all these other feelings around it to, keep, to incentivize the continuation of species. Right, so so that's, that's the decision. And the decision that you make about sex, whether it's like heaven or like a hamburger, will determine how you decide then to, to act out your sexuality, to act with your physical self. And I strongly believe that our bodies should follow uh, our beliefs and, and generally do. Our bodies should follow our, our minds and our hearts, right? And so we have to make our, our minds about this. It reminded me of what my, one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, said about men who visit brothels. Brothels are, you know what brothels are? So, like, okay. So, World's oldest profession. Okay, so he said that every man who knocks on a brothel door is really looking for God. And that he's really not just looking to, to take the edge off or to use another human, but that's what he does. He's looking for an eternal embrace that doesn't let go. That's why he has to keep going back again and again because what he finds there doesn't satisfy what he's really looking for. That's what people who call sex like heaven, who look at sex like it's heaven, would say about this man knocking at a brothel door. Most people would look at a man knocking at a brothel door and going, and they would just say, he's, he's just a man. That's what they do. He's just trying to take the edge off. He's trying to relax. He's doing what men do. It's part of our evolutionary DNA. It's like, it's, it's just what he does, and it's meaningless. He's there for the brothel. He's there for the girl. He's there for the meat to use, to consume, and to be done with. The way that you look at that man is telling of the state of your heart 
telling of where you are with, with God. It's easy to get cynical, I know. Now, I believe that sex is awesome, and it's awesome for a reason. It's awesome because God made it that way, and God made us to love it. God made us not just to love the act, but to desire intimacy, to have a hunger for transcendence because he's got something much, much better waiting for us at the end of this life. Before I close, I have to say this last part because I know that what I've said so far is just a lot of information and preacher talk, and there are people in this room who have more questions now than when I started talking. And there are people here who feel that if I or others here knew the truth, that we would think we would disqualify you. We would shame you. And I feel this tension to not end this message without addressing the power of shame. Listen, just read the Bible for yourself and look at the different people God used to bring salvation to the world. Do you know who God used to save the world? People far worse than you and me. He used murderers and liars and adulterers and thieves. He used prostitutes to to bring his salvation to the world through Jesus Christ. Don't think for a second that your sexual past, your sexual history, or the shame the church might have given you for it disqualifies you to experience and receive the love of God. The gospel story is not one that capitalizes on your shame. Jesus didn't come to cancel you because of what you've done. He came to cancel your shame. He came to cancel the past. He came to set you free. And so if you're going to change anything about the way that you're living right now, don't do it because of something I said. Don't do it because I've shamed you into it or some preacher scared you into it. If you ever change your ways, and as far as this topic is concerned, do it because you've fallen so in love with God you can't imagine doing anything. Because of all the sermons ever given, all the books ever written on the topic, the only thing that ever changed a human heart forever is grace, unconditional love. Understanding God's love for you will change your life in ways that this sermon cannot. And I pray that for you. Whoever you are and wherever you are in this topic, I pray that for you right now, that you would be open to the free gift of God's love in Jesus Christ given to you because he has invited you to his banquet. There is your name on an invitation. I hope you receive it today, right now. If you do, just bow your head and close your eyes and pray with me this prayer I'm about to pray, okay? You can just pray it under your breath or let me pray it for you. But let's pray together. God, we have not gotten this topic right. We have missed the mark, all of us, in so many ways. But perhaps even worse than that, we have fallen prey to the lie that our past, our history, is a deal breaker for you. Forgive us for that, Lord, because we know that your love poured out for us on the cross 
If that is real, there is no bridge too far for you. There is no kind of distance you can't reach. So for those who are really struggling to believe in their worth right now, because of this topic or something adjacent to this topic, Lord, I pray. I pray a word of healing right now. I pray that you're, you would be allowed into their heart, that they would just, for a moment, say yes to you, not to me or to the church or to anything other than just you and your love for them. I pray that you would forgive the church for the times when we have collectively sent the wrong message to people and done more harm than good. And I pray that you would remind us that the gospel story is not one that layers more shame upon shame upon shame, but one that washes us, frees us, one that loves us and restores us. We thank you for your grace and thank you for your hope. I pray that someone in this room right now who came fractured and broken has opened their heart to you. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.